Thank you, Nicole. We are continuing our series on Ezra and Nehemiah, looking at uh, the broader theme of renewal. God is renewing the nation of Israel at this time as he brought them into Jerusalem after 70 years of exile. And today we're looking at uh, the Word of God in renewal. I was recently talking with a young man um, about the historic nature of Christianity, and that it is um, the that that much of the Word of God is the is the record of God's work in the real world. Um, and as we talked, he he continued to uh, first of all um, explain that you know we've we've moved far enough along in history to where we can explain a lot more than ancient peoples used to. And so we don't need God or religion anymore to explain things. But as, as he explained what he conceived of what uh, the spiritual world is, because you know that's very popular nowadays to talk about um, not being religious, but spiritual. And so there's this acknowledgement of the spiritual, but, but his desire was that the spiritual uh, be disconnected from reality, and the you know as as we talked and as I've I've read over the last couple of weeks since that conversation, um, there's this there's this desire to have um, spirituality disconnected from reality uh, because I think in, in a significant way the motive is that um, if if we don't have to deal with reality in regard to our spirituality, we don't have to deal with a real God in real time, in real space, with our real sins and our real problems. We can kind of think of it as, a, as something that our spirits are going to somehow enjoy in the future when all of this world and its bad stuff is gone. And this is a, the, the crux of a lot of the Eastern religions, none of which have a basis in his, his history, or even proclaimed to have revelation from a monotheistic God. Um, and so it's this desire to, to be disconnected from the world and to not be accountable, to not be accountable to, to reality and to um, our own faults that are very real and, and contribute to the problems that, um, that this world faces and, and we ourselves face. And this is an ongoing challenge. And we see here in, in Scripture, we have two incidents that, that uh, Nehemiah and Ezra uh, record. And the first one says that to fulfill the word of God in Jeremiah... It was communicated to Jeremiah, one of the prophets, another part of Scripture. Um, God stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, to release Judah and Benjamin, the tri the, those two tribes that had been exiled in first Babylon, but then Persia destroyed Babylon and came in, and, and then Persia's reigning. And, and so they're in exile for 70 years. And so God stirred up King Cyrus to release them to go back to Jerusalem. Because God said in Jeremiah, uh, years and years earlier, that it would come to a point where after 70 years, they would be released. Well, come 70 years, it indeed happened. 
So then we have a second incident in the Nehemiah passage where the community is reading their Bible together, okay? Much like what we do in our, in our house churches and this morning. And they're doing it in a very honest way. I appreciated that, Lawrence, in terms of they are coming together as a group. And there's, there's two realities that they are um, internalizing. You know, it says that Ezra's reading, but then they had people stationed throughout the nation that were explaining the meaning and the sense of the passages to them. And so they're reading the Bible, the Pentateuch specifically, the law of God, and they are weeping. And then they rejoice. And so they're looking at the scriptures and they are seeing that the scriptures um, accurately describe their own history and explains their exile. Why, are we, why were we in Persia? Why did we come back and have to spend so much energy and effort and challenge to rebuild the temple and the wall? Um, and so, then, so that led to the weeping. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then they're reading, and then they see that there's hope. It's a little far. Stepping all over equipment up here, too. So they have this perspective that, that not only does the Word of God communicate what God has done, the Word of God explains their history and it explains their future. And as it explained their history and their future, they had emotional responses, which means that it was touching their hearts. And so what I want to talk about here this morning is what it means to have uh, the Word of God central to our lives in a way that isn't just kind of this mystical spirituality and a religion with mythology around it. Um, and what does it mean to experience the authority or the power uh, of God? And so immediately what we have when we read passages like this, we come to immediate problems. Is it historically reliable? Isn't God just something that we dreamed up to explain the unknown? Um, where is the authority? Where is the power? How do we know that God is true? And I'm not going to get into ap apologetics. But what I want to do is kind of address um, really how kind of the some of the, the where the scholarship is at in in viewing these these questions. All right, there's a lot of books and, and articles written on the historicity of the scriptures and all of these kinds of things. What, what I want to look at are the two kind of approaches. And so one of the approaches historically that Christians have taken into reading the Bible would be one, maybe a, a conservative approach, and then there's a liberal approach. And the conservative approach is really the tradition that we would um, come from mostly. Um, but there are some assumptions about the conservative approach that are quite problematic in terms of what it has produced. Um, it has produced a, a dualism, which is a perspective, and this is kind of ironic um, because it's similar to what Eastern mystic religions are. Um, there is this aspiration for the heavenly and kind of a disregard for the fleshly, uh, a disregard for what is human that God has created in real material ways. There is the and these are all different strands and traditions within conservative readings of Scripture. Um, a lot of it has produced a prosperity gospel, which is, again, kind of ironic because if there is 
such an emphasis on the future and the heavenly and kind of a disdain to the material and the fleshly, how did, how did a prosperity religion kind of come out of some of those perspectives? There is the, has been historically, the support of slavery and racism. Scripture has been used to support those uh, social ills. Um, there has been an undifferentiated reading of the Old and New Testament in terms of we kind of pick and choose what we want to follow or not follow, and we kind of approach it just from the standpoint of a, of a, of a religious or rules-based approach. We pick and choose things that we want to highlight. There is the valuing of some texts and teachings over others, okay? A lot of, a lot of emphasis on the strong uh, moral teachings of Scripture, and maybe sometimes not quite such an emphasis on some of the uh, calls of Scripture to address social things, or it's, it lacks an emphasis on some of those sins that we kind of want to hide, like gluttony or anger at times. Um, there is the, the emphasis on religious, and sometimes a, 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 just a overview or even not paying attention at all to some of the texts that call us to social or political issues, and then just the overall failure to pay attention to context and hermeneutics in terms of skillfully reading the scriptures in light of its, its overall message and interpreting it in that way. And so a lot, a lot of these, this is kind of a summary from N.T. Wright's book that he wrote called The Final Word or The Last Word, and he's addressing this issue of the authority of scripture. And so um, because of some of the ways that the conservative traditions have approached Scripture, it's caused other parties to um, think of Scripture and the following of Scripture in, in some negative ways. Now, on the other side, if we're going to look at the liberal perspective, okay, the liberal approach to Scripture, it has its own set of problems as well. And there's been a lot of uh, writing on this particular issue uh, beyond the fundamentalism of the conservatives and beyond the liberalism of, of the left in terms of approaching Scripture. And the, the, some of the misreadings or the, the shortfalls from reading Scripture from a liberal perspective, um, there's been this... this claim to approach the text, not from a religious perspective, but objectively or scientifically, um, which is impossible. There is a presumption that history and science has disproved the Bible so that its, its um, central claims are unfounded, and it's read most likely simply for the common experience it's not culturally relevant to our modern times. I've had numbers, I'm sure you've all had, conversations with people where they say, why, why would I read a book that's written 2,000 years ago okay, uh, for my life today? It's completely out of date. People that were uh, writing back then, um, their concerns were fundamentally different, as if marriage and raising kids and how to care for people and all of the things that we deal with on a daily basis are somehow new to this generation and the past generations haven't been concerned with those things. Um, there's a rewriting of history starting with enlightenment in terms of um, only from a scientific perspective can we have any sort of truth. It's, it's kind of evolutionary arrogance 
historical arrogance. Only for the last few hundred years have we been able to truly understand things because we threw out God and we threw out religion and we threw out the supernatural and therefore we have clear perspectives. There's the relativizing of biblical teachings to generally enlightened principles. And so what do we mean by that? It's just you, you see, um, for example, uh, the lifting up of Jesus' um, acceptance of all, and tolerance and being inclusive, okay? Like, for example, Zacchaeus, the, the tax collector, or the prostitute that anointed Jesus' feet. Uh, but then there's kind of this disregard to, well, when Jesus was with Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus repented of his, of his sins, and when he was with the prostitute, he told that woman to go and sin no more. And so Jesus was indeed inclusive, but he was also very firm in what he taught all of those that gathered around him. And the, the, the firmness of Jesus' teaching is kind of disregarded uh, for the more generalized, accepting, uh, enlightened perspectives. There's a highly, highly political or social reading to the exclusion of religious teachings or spiritual teachings. And since the church took a while to produce the New Testament canon, there was the possibility or the likelihood that a lot of errors were introduced into those 200 years between Christ and when the canon was solidified. And so we can't trust the New Testament because of all of these errors. And then we have truth and science on one hand. Um, and unless we, unless we can prove the scriptures from the perspective of science, it's really not knowable. And so you kind of have these two approaches um, an, an over-religious, pious perspective um, that uh, has a, a, a wooden, literal approach to the text, and then you have a, a, a perspective towards the scriptures that kind of disregards the, the need or the desire to get any sort of truth out of it at all. And those two perspectives have really guided the church and in its interpretation of the word for a long time, several hundred years. So Leon Cass... There's another perspective. So N.T. Wright is an Anglican bishop and pastor and religious person, very committed, very profound uh, biblical scholar. Leon Cass uh, is a non-believer. He, uh, he was trained as a scientist, trained as a medical uh, doctor, and he was a professor at the University of Chicago, trained at Harvard and Chicago. And here's he started teaching and reading the Bible a couple decades ago uh, from the perspective of philosophy. And here's his, two, his, here's his perspective on these two approaches. Biblical scholars, preoccupied with determining the sources of the text or comparing it with the writings of other traditions, now rarely read and teach the Bible in a wisdom-seeking spirit. They don't, biblical scholars, and he's talking to the liberal side, aren't approaching the text as if it has something to say to them in the living of their lives. And the traditional readers, the conservative ones, the traditional readers of the text often read too narrowly, resolving textual difficulties in the most pious direction. He says, when I was an undergraduate at the University of Chicago, headed for a career in medicine and science, I was inclined to think that all religions were fossils, Superstitious leftovers from before the age of enlightenment. Little, then, little did I then imagine that I would someday be a professor myself. Little did I then imagine that I would later come to see the insufficiency 
of the scientific understanding of human life and the Enlightenment's view of the world. I know that my sympathies have shifted towards the biblical pole of the age-old tension between Athens and Jerusalem. Athens being the Greek academy and scholarship and Jerusalem being the capital of, of Judaism and Christianity. And so this, these are, this is a, a biblical scholar's perspective writing and saying, listen, it's time to get out of this, this old discussion about uh, the scriptures, and we either take these overly traditional and pious readings or where, there's, where everything is, is um, uh, for this religious purpose, or we take a reading where there's no view and, and truth in it at all that is helpful to us. We gotta, we gotta get away from this. So a religious scholar, a biblical scholar is saying that, and we have a, a, a scientist, a medical professional, who began to see in his own life and in, the, and in the cultural issues that are facing America and the world that the, that the scriptures actually have a lot to say when we sit down and actually read them. And so we see here in the, uh, well, this isn't working. We see here in, in Nehemiah and Ezra the perspective that God is at work in a supernatural way in the world recorded in history. He moved the heart of this king. Now, Cyrus's proclamation that Judah could go back and rebuild the temple and then the later uh, declaration that they could go back and build the walls, that, that declaration was not just specifically, this is historical fact, that proclamation was not specific to Israel to Judah, it was given to all of the nations that Babylon had conquered. What Babylon had done was tried to integrate all of the peoples into uh, Babylon culture and religion at, at the expense of the foreign nations worshiping their own gods, and that greatly unsettled the people of Babylon. And so when Persia came into power, they said, you know, we're going to do away with that Babylonian, Babylonian policy. We're going to recognize all religions, and the, the, the Persian government will pay for all of the temples being rebuilt for all of the religions that our people are, are from and for those lands. So it wasn't just Israel that went back. It was all of the nations went back, rebuilt their temples, and started worshiping their own gods. But God was at work in that process 70 years after Jeremiah said it would happen. So we see God at work in this kind of cosmic, global way. But then we see God working, and so that's power. That's authority. But then we see God working in this uh, very intimate way as they came together as a people to read the Bible to see what it had to say for them and in their circumstance And they started weeping. They started weeping. They're sitting there together, and it's, it's thousands of people. They're reading the Bible, much like our house churches would be, or much like this now, except we're not, we're not kind of interacting with it as they did in this particular setting. But God is at work in the hearts of people, and in the hearts of, of the community of his people. And this is where you see 
the manifestation of the power of God in a way that um, isn't in need of scientific validation. It isn't in need of, of a religious or pious experience so that we can feel spiritual or feel religious. This is the Spirit of God working through His Word and affecting their hearts. We don't cry or express emotion unless it's coming from our hearts. All right? Our hearts are, are the places of our wills. They are the places of our emotions. And when they, are, when they are touched, those emotions come out. The things that are important to us, the things that are vulnerable to us, the things that, that, that uh, make us excited and happy and joyful, or the things that make us sad and dejected and shameful, the, the emotions come from our hearts. And here we have God's people crying. They're crying. And we have to ask ourselves, why are they crying? And then we need to think about our own contexts. When do we cry in our church meetings? We just had our... So if you're, if you're not a part of a house church, or if you're a guest in the church, we, we meet as house churches. Those are kind of our small groups. We call them house churches because we want the whole church to know that while this is indeed church, I and mean, this is a meeting of the church... Um, this type of meeting doesn't reflect uh, the full function and dynamic of what the New Testament speaks to when it speaks of the church being a family. And so when we come together in our small groups, what we call house churches, we really emphasize that this is the context for the working out of the teachings and functions of the New Testament when it comes and it talks about church, confession of sin, sharing your needs, meeting the needs of others. That, that really happens when you can develop relationships with people. So we've put a lot of our energy into those house churches because that's where we want people to develop relationships. And so we just had our, our gender split. So once a month we get together the men and, and the women um, and that's where we really kind of get into um, the study of the word we've been doing, and then we take that what we've been learning in the study of the word, and, and we begin to talk about it in a personal way. And people are confessing their sins, and they're exposing their sins, and there are tears. There is crying. So what Israel is reading, okay, they're reading the five books of Moses, in the five books of Moses, beginning with Exodus and ending, well, it begins with Genesis, but Exodus is where you begin to see um, the instructions given to Israel as a nation. And it's clearly for the entire four last books, Israel, I am calling you out of the nations. You are to be my people. I will be your God. I will put you in a land that is flowing with milk and honey. Five of you will defeat armies of hundreds and thousands. I will protect you. I will prosper you. If you acknowledge that I am the, the caretaker of you, and it is through me that you have life, it is through me that you have prosperity, I will take care of you. But if you turn your back, if you turn your back and start to follow other gods and begin to practice the practices of these other nations, I will bring judgment and cursing against you, and I will exile you into foreign nations. And so 
they're reading this. They're reading this. After coming back out of 70 years of exile. Now, you've got to be, you've got to keep these things in your mind as you're reading this. Um, their city, Jerusalem, was under siege for years. Okay, there were food shortages, there were water shortages, food shortages that got so bad that they started eating their babies, okay? I mean, this is desperate. This is pain as a people, pain as families, okay? Where mothers are eating their own children. We got 15 or 16 babies that are being born this year. I think we had 14 born last year into the church, which is a blessing, it's a huge blessing. Okay, this is disgusting and horrible to think about. Would you ever get to the point where you were so desperate that you ate your own children? You can't even imagine those kinds of circumstances. It is unfathomable to consider. And then they get taken away after thousands of people are murdered. They get taken away into a foreign nation for two and a half, about two generations, 70 years. So these stories are there. Grandparents and parents witness these kinds of events. So here they are. They've been freed to go back. They've been freed to go back. And now they're reading. It is I, Israel, who has prospered you. It is I, Israel, who made these promises to you. And if you read Deuteronomy, chapter 32, it says, and Moses, this is in Moses' song. He concludes the entire book with it. When I bring you back from exile, because it's clear. It's clear in Israel's early history. It's clear in Israel's later history. It's clear in these two books, because these two books with Ezra and Nehemiah conclude with Israel falling back into its own ways. It was known that they would experience the worst of the prophecies that Moses had for them. It was clear that they were going to experience exile. They didn't have to, but that is the nature of humanity. It is, it is captive to sin. It is captive to idolatry. It is captive to evil practices. And that is really what the books of Ezra and Nehemiah are showing. No matter how many times, and when they would make a covenant with God, they'd break it, they'd remake it. And even here in, in Nehemiah, not in this passage that we read today, but even here in Nehemiah, they, they go through this process again. They finish up the wall. It's actually right after, I think it's, I think it's right after this passage. They go through this process again. They rebuild the wall. They come together. They read the Bible. They celebrate. They have all these sacrifices. They make a new covenant and then, bang, they're right back to their, to their old practices. So they're weeping. They're weeping because of the pain that they've experienced. They're weeping because of, of, of the stories that they've been telling each other for several generations. They're weeping because of the, of the memories they had of the years of siege that Nebuchadnezzar laid against Jerusalem and all of the consequences of that. They are weeping because of the suffering that they experienced in exile, the suffering of traveling back to Jerusalem, the suffering of rebuilding the temple and the walls after years of efforts. 
in, against opposition, against fights, against wars, against internal strife and division. And they're weeping, I think, first and foremost, because they recognize that it was their responsibility and it was their sin that caused this. It's just like the times when we're sitting in our house churches. And all of us, if you've been in a house church for very long, and it's not just in our gender split times, it's in our large group sessions as a house church as well, when there's 15 or 20 or 30 of us sitting there. We start weeping because our sin hurts. Our sin hurts. We see the pain that it has caused ourselves. We see the pain that it has caused others. Uh, the, the weight of our guilt, okay, the sense of, yes, I am a transgressor. Yes, I am a wrongdoer. Yes, I'm an idolater. I am immoral. I'm a drunkard. I'm an abuser. All of the things. We confess all of these things because we are no different than the people of Israel. We return to our old practices. And we weep because, one, we know better, and two, we have no power to stop it. We have a sense of that guilt. And then we have a sense of the shame. What are others going to think of me? What does God think of me? What do I think of myself? And that is shame. And it causes us to weep. And oftentimes we're also angry, angry at ourselves and angry at others for their judgment and shame over us. And so as Israel cried, we cry. As Israel cried, we cried. And again, this isn't, this isn't the pursuit of, of, of truth from a scientific perspective. This isn't the pursuit of a religious experience by reading a religious text Okay? This is, this is the pursuit and experience of the power of God through his word in the context of community when we get real, when we get honest, when we see in the scriptures descriptions of ourselves. But then, but then, the leaders tell them to stop crying. And the leaders tell them to rejoice. And you ask, why? It's good to cry. It's good to feel remorse for our sins and for the suffering that we have experienced. It's good to grieve for the sins that we've committed against others and the sins that have been committed against us. There's nothing wrong with the grieving. But we can't end with the grieving, just like Israel couldn't end with the grieving, and Israel's leaders wouldn't let them end with the grieving. Because at the end of Deuteronomy, the end of the book of the law, it doesn't end with this judgment and curse coming down. Okay? It ends with a couple sentences that say, and no prophet like Moses has ever come from the nation of Israel since that time. Now that last little passage there was after the prophets. After the prophets after the prophets' experience, okay? The prophets have come and the prophets have gone. Israel went into exile. No prophet like Moses. Deuteronomy 18, Moses said, a prophet like me will come. Actually, God told this to Moses. A prophet like you, Moses, will come and the people will listen to him. 
And that thread that Moses had there in 18, which is then concluded with at the end in chapter 34, was the thread that runs through the entire first five books of Moses, the promise of a king from the line of Judah that would come and ultimately put an end to evil, that would ultimately come an end and put an end to sin, to, to strife in marriage, to strife among brothers. Because, you know, Cain and Abel, have Cain killed Abel, and there's violence, there's rape, there's murder, there's incest, there's mothers eating their own children. All of those kinds of things are happening. In the early days, as recorded in Deuteronomy and the other parts of Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus, Numbers, all those things are going on. But this thread of hope, this coming king who would destroy evil and establish a kingdom, and establish the kingdom, later told to David, through you I will have a descendant, and he will rule from Jerusalem forever over not only Israel but the nations of the world. The nations of the world would enjoy this, what we talked about last week, shalom. Complete and total human flourishing and delight in what God had created. And so this is what they are to rejoice in. Yes, the sin has been exposed. The sin has been confessed. There has been sadness. But it doesn't stop there. And so when they are reminded of this hope, because it says they understood the words that were read to them. And it led to a party. It led to rejoicing. It led to this. The authority of Scripture, when unpacked, offers a picture of God's sovereign and saving plan for the entire cosmos, dramatically inaugurated by Jesus himself, and now to be implemented through the Spirit-led life of the church, precisely as the Scripture-reading community. And so Judah's experience, Israel's experience there, Their experience of going deep into the word, confronting their sin, and going deep into the word to see the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ was that king. He was that child. And that is is the power that God is wanting to unleash. That is the ultimate apologetic for the truth of the word of God. Us seriously reading seriously approaching the Word of God, not disregarding it because it can't be scientifically proven, not looking at it for just a religious or pious experience to say that we've been spiritual. We've been godly because we've done these practices. We don't read the Bible just to check a box. We read the Bible as a community to share together the experience of the Spirit of God and the power of God as He is at work in changing our very lives. And after your life has been changed by the word of God, in the spirit of God working, through the church also also ministering to you that very word, you know you don't need convincing about whether God is real or not. You don't need convincing about whether the Bible is true. Because you have experienced the power of God at work in your life. There are two early on experiences, and and I've talked about them before. I was deep in trouble in my life as a, as a young man, 16 years old, and I read the book, I read the book of Revelation. It took me two or three hours. And I didn't have a profoundly, I didn't have a, a deep internal feeling of God's power, but was convinced in my mind. 
I had a strong conviction in my mind that I believe the Spirit gave me. This is true. Jesus is coming back. He's going to be king, and I want to serve him. That, that conviction over that two- or three-hour reading was branded into my, into my mind. And then a few years later, because as a young Christian, you know, you're, not even, you're in Christ. The Spirit of God has been put in you. But it takes a long time for the Spirit and the Word and the people of God to minister to you in such a way to where you begin to feel freedom from your sin and from your guilt and from your shame. And, and a few years into my walk in Christ, I, I, I could not bear the weight of the guilt I felt in my sin. God's conviction was just heavy upon me. I think also the attacks of the enemy and his accusations were heavily, heavily upon me, denying the power of the gospel and the power of Jesus' death to cover and pay for my sins. And there was a Bible teacher that was preaching out of the book of Romans. He was in Romans 6, talking about the acceptance that we have as children of God, saved by Jesus Christ, brought into his family, adopted into his family. And in Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And something clicked. I had it in my mind. I'd been studying Romans for a year. I had it in my mind. But something happened in my spirit that was overwhelming. It was a, it was a feeling. I felt God's love. I felt God's forgiveness, and I rejoiced. You don't need to convince me that God is true. He has taken away my guilt and my shame, and it was real. And the power of God is at work in us for this very purpose. And we need each other, just like Israel needed each other. See, the power of God will be realized in us as individuals, but it will be ultimately realized in us as people when we come together. How often do you confess and identify and expose your sin as an individual in a real way? You can keep it, you can confess to God, but it's when you're forced to confess it to others that it really becomes real, right? And that's what we've got to do. And in that, the power of God is realized together in community. And the, the power and the authority of God and his word is affirmed. And then together, together, and this is an ele a critical element of renewal that we'll look at in future sermons. Together, having shared the power of God at work in our own lives, we become a force in the world to extend the kingdom of God around us. Because the joy that we experience is overflowing, and we've got to share it with others. Let me pray.